As you work your way through the Bible, it's good at times as you read to think about increasing your word power. Ulster Christianity gets, at times, at best, it can be cliched, it can be hackneyed. And you know, well, certainly I know from experience there's certain places you never get invited back if you haven't used the language of Zion. And we have this habit of declaring a God who's relevant for the 21st century, but can be spoken of only in archaic language. One of the challenges about language, well, one of the words that challenged me most is the fact, well, by its absence. The noun Christianity is never, ever actually used in the whole of Scripture. And in a quite radical way, the French reform thinker, Jacques Ellul, who was at one stage mayor of Bordeaux, issued the challenge where he says, I refuse to use the noun Christianity except to describe that which is a distortion of what the Bible actually teaches. Because in the popular mind, Christianity has become associated with the institutional church, with structures, with power, with, well, security. And when you come back, what I find enormously fresh is that in the Acts of the Apostles, the first believers were described as the way. Now think about the dynamic nature of this. What's that saying about the nature of our faith? Well again, and we've been tuning our ears to listen in stereo, although it's not our primary purpose tonight, that very word way cannot be understood apart from its Hebrew scripture background. Because very, very key to Hebrew and Jewish thinking was the idea of the way, the derech, the way of God, the way that you walked. In fact, your lifestyle was called your walk, your halakha. That noun is derived from a verb meaning to walk. Enoch walked with God. The saints that walked with God. It's dynamic. Now if we grasp that idea, there's a dynamism. That walking with God and faith in Jesus is not static. It's not about preserving the status quo. There's something dynamic about it. And to understand that dynamism, I'm suggesting to you that we need to listen to the whole Bible, and particularly we need to listen in stereo. And as we're listening in stereo, what we're discovering is that the earlier parts of Scripture, they're not redundant, they're not to be treated in any deprecatory way, but they're revealing so much to us. Then Jesus comes. And as Jesus comes, in the light of his coming, so much more is revealed in what we call the New Testament. So you've got the Hebrew scriptures in anticipation. You've got the New Testament scriptures in interpretation. And it's when you bring these two together, I find the lights go on. When you begin to look at the Bible as a whole, then you begin to appreciate the ongoing relevance of the whole of the Bible. Look back to ancient Israel. They were on a journey. It was a journey starting off, remember, with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. It's a journey towards a land of promise. You can't read the first five books without your hiking boots. You're traveling onwards to the fulfillment of that promise. Now imagine, try, and here's a good exercise for all of us at times. 
Put yourself into the place of an ancient Israelite. That's the challenge to take history really seriously. To really understand that what the Jew received in his space-time location, geography, history, was important. God just didn't download ethereal truths that could happen in any place at any time. But that his revelation was intimately related to specific places and specific times. So let's treat what the Jew received seriously. It's not simply material that we can sort of allegorize or spiritualize or just hop from so that we get into the New Testament. So there's a reality to it. And if you were an ancient Israelite, you were anticipating something. You were looking to the fulfillment of God's promises. So you were on a journey. Now, look at how that journey was defined within particularly the first five books of the Bible. Effectively, as a Jew looked at his journey, it starts when God intruded into history. He took that dynamic initiative that, remember, according to Exodus 2.24, that initiative was grounded in the promises that he had given to Abraham. So it wasn't just an initiative out of the blue. He acted because he was bound to his own word. Then through the man of his choice, he intruded into history, brings them through an experience of death at the Passover evening, and then begins the journey towards the promise. You get that structure. That's where the ancient Israelite lived in these opening parts of of the scripture. And as we begin to look at that, the journey between God's intrusion and the fulfillment of promise was filled with some alarming situations. Life in the desert, in the wilderness, was a dangerous place. You didn't quite know what was happening. Freedom is a dangerous place to be in many ways. It's a challenging place to remember your identity in God, to see what he's done. And Israel proved themselves at times an incredibly truculent people, an incredibly, you know, um, unfaithful people. It was hard to be in the desert. Now, make the mental shift for a moment. Come to look at New Testament believers. This time as we look through the New Testament scriptures and look at the analogy that occurs. Because as we look at the New Testament scriptures, then our journey of faith begins again when God intrudes into history through the man of his choice who experiences the reality of death, brings them through the waters of baptism to a journey that would lead them towards the fulfillment of his promise. The analogy is so striking. Surely, not even the proverbial blind man and his galloping horse could actually miss it. You begin to see the striking analogy between the Jewish people in the desert where God intrudes and they begin a journey that leads towards the fulfillment of promise and the New Testament person on the way where God intrudes and a journey begins towards the fulfillment of the promise. That is exactly how the writer in the book of Hebrews was thinking. Particularly in Hebrews 3 and 4. Now, he was addressing first century believers. Now, let's not distance ourselves from them. In terms of the big plan of redemptive history, the recipients 
of the letter to Hebrews are in the principle in exactly the same position as you are and I are, are um, in Windsor in 2007. Exactly the same. Now, I know there's 2,000 years of history between that letter and us. But in terms of the big unfolding plan of God, we're in exactly the same position as the recipients of that letter. Because we live looking back to a momentous intrusion of God in history, namely the exodus that he accomplished in Christ, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. We're on the way too. We haven't accomplished it. We haven't reached the terminus yet. So it's against that background the writer in Hebrews, when he's addressing the problems that he saw amongst these early believers. Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3, because he's going to explore for us, you see, the nature of the way ahead. When we begin to look at this, he has this very, very dynamic concept. If I'm following Jesus, if I'm a believer, I'm on the way. And believe me, this way is not a traditional route. That's the sad bit. How many people are walking down the streets of this province with open Bibles that they read with closed minds? This is not a traditional route. We're going to discover God tears down a lot of these walls on this way ahead. And we're going to explore this journey towards, in a sense, well, the analogy is as Israel traveled towards the promised land, let's get on our hiking boots and we're going to journey towards the fulfillment of the promise. Hebrews chapter 3. Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, and incidentally, when the writer in Hebrews is using that term, holy brothers, there is nothing there about exclusive language. I think he's reflecting, remember, low New Testament writers wrote in Greek, they thought like Jews, they thought like Hebrews. And even to this day, in Hebrew, you use a male participle, uh, when, the form of the verb, when you're addressing a crowd. And that's not to be exclusive of anybody. <clears throat> so holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and the high priest whom we confess he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house Jesus has been found of worthy of greater honour than Moses just as the builder of the house has greater honour than the house itself For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son. A son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. 
Here we're back to numbers. Where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. And we'll stop there at verse 14. But we'll come back to it. So there's a sense of journeying. Now look at how this writer addresses the predicament and the problem he sees in the first century church. He asks them to tune in, first of all, to what happened in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. And then, having well drawn on something that they would have been familiar to, he interprets that and he writes what we have as the book of Hebrews. So if we're going to understand what's going on here, we need both these earpieces in. We're going to have to listen. And what's the first thing the writer in Hebrews says? First of all, he's encouraging them, the opening verse, focus on Jesus. There's a singularity to this man's focus right through the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing book in terms of setting forth the sheer supremacy and the uniqueness of Jesus and in specifically new or old covenant categories because Jesus primarily in the book of Hebrews is the great high priest. He is one taken from among his men representing mankind in the totality of his humanity but also representing God. That was exactly the role of a priest. But now, look at the opening verses of chapter 3 and how he has his focus on Jesus. Because he takes this wonderful image of God as a house builder. And he's, now there's several images that run through the, the scripture about God's activity down through the ages. And one of the debates that goes on today and one of the issues over which Christians differ is how do we relate the Hebrew scriptures to the New Testament scriptures? And you get all sorts of schools of interpretation that sadly, you know, lead to, to tragic schisms and tragic divisions among believers. So when we look at this, we're not looking at to cause, you know, sort of just division between believers, but to wrestle with a very real issue. How do we relate the earlier parts of Scripture to the later parts? Now, I only want to take one image for a few minutes. The book of Hebrews implies there's a very real continuity, but not at the expense of some elements that make for discontinuity. The writer in Hebrews wants to tell us, hey, this story started way back in the Old Testament, it's continuing to this day, but there are certain things that make the new covenant new. But never lose, when we want to emphasize the superiority and the finality and the definitiveness of what we have in the new covenant, let's never do so at the expense of what's gone before. 
Because remember how the opening verses of Hebrews starts. You know, those immortalized words in the King James Version, at diverse times and sundry manners, God spoke. Now, look at those opening verses. Because in all of history, the writer of Hebrews only recognizes two periods. In the past, and what marked the past? The partial preliminary piecemeal revelation of God as he spoke to fathers through the prophets. What's the second period of history? In these last days. What marks the superiority of these last days? The definitiveness of the revelation that's come once God has spoken in the Son, in Jesus. And once he's spoken in the Son, he wasn't waiting for the Son's revelation to be supplemented by Muhammad, by Mary Beccaretti, or by Joseph Smith. He was not waiting for that. As you look at the scriptures, you see a finality and a climax, a definitiveness in what has come in Jesus, what we were looking at last week, the sheer offensiveness of this idea of one. That down through the ages, as with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, with Moses, with Joseph, through the kings, God revealed himself through the one of his choice. But look at these verses. While Jesus is <clears throat> the dividing point in history and marked the beginning of a revelation that was far superior to anything that had gone before, do you notice the continuity in the opening three verses of Hebrews? It's the one God who spoke. The God who spoke in the past is the God who spoke through Jesus. One verb, one God. No idea of a cold, arbitrary, tyrannical Old Testament God who then sent gentle Jesus meek and mild along. It's one God who's revealing himself down through these pages. This one God <clears throat> who's speaking is also the one God who's building. And he's building a house. Now look at this dramatic image. God is building a house. Now in this house... Do you see the exciting part the, where we're included in this? This activity that God is engaged in, he's, oh, I wish we'd time. This is, would take us away into another tangent tonight. Would take us for weeks to explore it. But God's building a new temple today. Look at 1 Corinthians, look 3, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, 2. God's building with living stones. Dynamic living bricks. We're part of this spiritual house that he's building. He says we are part of this house. Christ is the foundation stone of this house. So this house that was typified originally, the prototype of this was a stone building that stood in Jerusalem. It's now coming to a climax where God, the God who had come down the mountain to dwell in the tent, the God who had come down to dwell in the temple, the God who had come down in his glory to live in the flesh, that is the God who comes down today in the spirit to live in these frail, fickle things we call bodies. Who, by his spirit, indwells and is building a house. Where you get this play on the idea of the house, not simply the house with bricks and mortar, but the house as a family. We are his house. Now, <clears throat> look at what the writer in Hebrews is saying. Where did this house start? As it started back with God's building activity, way back in the Old Covenant, Moses was a servant in this house. 
But as this house is going on, Christ becomes the son in this house. Do you see the continuity? But the clearly explicit superiority. Moses was there. He's part of the line. He's part of the meta-narrative. He's part of the big story. But he has an inferior place. He is but the servant. Christ comes as the son. But there's the continuity there. Learn to think as you read the book of, of Hebrews and as you read your Old Testament, it's like reading through a triangular lens. And the three points of that triangle, as you trace the line right through the scripture, there's always an element of continuity. But within that continuity, there's always an element of contrast. And at the heart of that contrast, there's the sheer superiority of what we have in the new. So Jesus is a high priest, continuity with the old. As a high priest, he is immortal, the contrast with the old. In his immortality, he is God himself, the sheer superiority of what we have. So there's this continuity. Think back of the big story that we were in. God started to build his house. And do you know, incidentally, even in rabbinic tradition, the rabbis said that the tent of meeting, the tabernacle at the foot of Sinai, was in a sense only second best. Because had Israel not sinned, in the making of the golden calf, you know, in Exodus 32, 33, had they not rebelled at that stage, God's ideal, if we can put it in those languages, was that he would come down and he would live in his people. Not in a building at all. The building became second best. So here's God building his house. And as you stand, as it were, back in the old covenant and you look at that house, then look through to see that house building continues. And it takes on a new shape and a fuller shape in Jesus because Jesus becomes the foundation stone, the capstone. He is the door. It's in him there is the life. In him we become this house. So we're built together. We're integrated as a whole. So he's saying, on this journey, focus on Jesus because it's in him we all hang together. It's in him we build everything. We aspire to him. We have our cohesion and our identity. We have our solidarity in him. So do you see the journey we are on? Our journey started back here with the ancient Israelite where God intrudes in the Exodus event, which is simply a prototype for the ultimate Exodus in the cross of Jesus. That's the route we are on. That's the beginning of our faith. We're journeying on. And Jesus, remember, look at what First Peter talks about. The spirit of Christ being at work even in the prophets at this earlier stage. Because remember, he is the pre-incarnate Lord. He's the eternal God. So he's been there right from the beginning. So Moses was simply the servant, but now we live under the umbrella of Christ the Son. That's our privileged position. That's what makes it new. We're on the same road as the ancient Israelite. We're in the same house. We're sharing the one root. That's why it's imperative that as the church we need to go back to school with Israel in this sense and learn where we've come from. That as Eugene Peterson says, salvation's not a one-night stand. But salvation is God drawing us into this big historical event. 
We become part of this story. Now, as we make this journey, not only do we focus on Christ, look at chapter 3. He says also, be open to the Spirit. At verse 7, here he goes on to actually quote from Psalm, one of the, from the Psalms. And it's in the context here of an openness. Look at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And this combination of the Psalms and Isaiah are coming together here. Listen to the Spirit of God. Do you see his word today? That's not simply referring to the 2nd of September, 2008. Today, as it's used by the writer in Hebrews, and as it's used by the Apostle Paul, today is actually that period between Jesus' first coming and his return. That's today. That's the period of grace. It's a tragedy when words like today and the hour of salvation are used for evangelistic blackmail. You know, it's ten minutes to eight on the 2nd of September. If you are not converted now, you will be sort of you will never have another opportunity. This type of evangelistic blackmail that goes on. That's not how those terms are used in the New Covenant. Today, or the hour of salvation, is referring to that period of grace. When you begin to think of the big plan of God sweeping from creation through to the Jesus, the Christ event, and then that period between the coming of Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth, that's the period that in the new covenant is called today. Today, it's a wonderful period of grace. This is the period of God's patience. This is a period where he's issuing his invitation. He, in his time, will do his judging. Thankfully, we are not called to do it. Though there does seem to be a number of believers who seem to have taken that mission on themselves, that they do the judging. That is not our lot. Our lot and our privilege is to celebrate the worth of this today that has dawned with the coming of Jesus. A period of grace. John the Baptist didn't quite grasp that. John was confused. Because John said, look, you know, I was expecting Messiah to come and, and put the axe to the root of the tree and do some judging. And what are you doing? You're sitting eating with people that we don't want anything to do with. And Jesus' answer was to the effect, as he responded in terms of, of the prophets, Jesus said, look, today, this is the period of grace. This is the period where that invitation stands. I will do the judging, and I will do it with perfect equity and total objectivity. But I will do that in my timing. Today is this period of grace. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. Hebrews chapter 3, again, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Today, if you hear his voice, this openness to the reality of the Spirit of God, this living awareness that God may actually do something today. Do you know what I find? One of the tragedies today of the institutional organized church, people come along Sunday by Sunday, they live out their, their, their Christian life, and they greet each day without any anticipation that God can actually do something different today. That he can actually change something. That he can actually answer a prayer today. 
So many have been caught into theological systems, into the apparatus of theological systems that limits the Holy Spirit to one particular period of, of time and somewhere or another precludes the possibility of him being at work in some way today. We get tied into systems and those systems put peer pressure on us. We can't be seen to differ. We've got to toe the line. We've got to keep the line with everybody else. Use the right cliches. Use the right phrases. Get the right terminology. And all the time building up walls around us. Theological defense mechanisms that doesn't allow the reality of the Spirit of God at work. Today, if you hear his voice, there seems to be a nut, a very powerful insistence that, that God is at work during this period. When we come to look at it. And then he goes on to verse 13. Not only do you focus on Jesus, not only do you listen for the Spirit and an openness to the Spirit, but look at what he says, encourage one another. And look at the language. Because he says, encourage one another daily. It's not a once for all activity. It's not something you do once a week or once a month. But it's a daily activity. Built into the very fabric of the text here, there is this necessity. We need encouragement every single day. And every single one of us need that encouragement. You begin to think of that. When did I last encourage somebody? When did I last lift the phone? When did I last write a note? When did I last just speak a word of encouragement into their lives? Because there's something within all of us just craving that. We need it. We're not talking now about polishing egos. We're not talking now about false, you know, building up false pride or, or using empty language but a genuine concern that allows you to draw along somebody and put your arm around them or some way express your desire to encourage them, to express the solidarity with them in the faith. How we desperately need that today. That simple touch, that letter, that phone call, encouraging one another while it's called today because the whole picture, we're on a way. And I've done enough hiking with students to know. And I only take them in wee walks. We never do more than 20k. <laughs> and, you know, but boy, you're, you're not terribly far in. We need encouragement. We desperately need encouragement. Because along the way, every step counts. But every head counts. Let me tell you, I can never read the book of Numbers without thinking of an incident that made a big impact on me. And we've been linking here to numbers and the experience in the desert. They needed the encouragement to keep going. One day I was talking to Ellie Cohen. Now Ellie was uh, not the last, but the, the third. If you go back, he was the third uh, rabbi in Belfast, Ellie Cohen. And, and I got to know Ellie quite well. And I remember saying to Ellie one day, Ellie, how do you know when you've got the men for the minyam? The minyam's the name for the quorum of ten that they need to pray. Jewish men will not pray until you've ten. And I said, how do you know? Do you count them? Oh, well, look, he, I knew by the face I'd said something 
that, that deeply offended him. I said, I'm sorry, I, I know I've said something, I don't know what I've said, but what have I said that so made you react so, so strongly? He says, Desi, 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 don't you know the verse in, in Numbers? He says, you never ever count Jews. And I'm sitting like you're sitting, wondering, what did he mean? He says, when you count people, you give them a number. And of course, some of his own family had died in Auschwitz. To numbers, to personalize, to dehumanize. He says, don't you know the verse at the beginning of numbers? Now, the English version says, Moses was given a command to make a census. To count the people. But actually, do you know what the Hebrew says? Literally, the Hebrew says, lift up the head of every man. It effectively means you are counting, but the text says, lift up the head of every man. In other words, you don't simply count them, you don't give them numbers, but you lift up every head because every head counts. Here's the army going on the journey into the wilderness. Every head counted. Nobody was simply a number. Nobody was a statistic. Every head counted. And you're sitting thinking, well, how did he know when they got ten through the door in the morning? He had a verse from the Torah with ten words in it. And as each person came in, he gave them a word. When all ten were gone, he knew he had ten. It's not just sophistry, but the point he's making is so powerful. Every head counts. Every single person has value. Can you begin to understand now Paul's imagery when you come to looking at the body and every part different but every part valuable? Where you begin to see this wonderful picture that on this journey, as we focus, Israel was told, as the, well, look, their problem. In the wilderness, they rebelled, they were unfaithful. And that's why the writer in Hebrews is saying, look, you be careful that the same deceitfulness and hardness doesn't creep into you. Now you think about it, even in terms of hardness. Goodness, isn't that one of the salient marks of a good Ulster Christian? He's a wee hard man. And the harder he is, the better the Christian he's thought to be. Oh, I wouldn't say he was narrow, but he could look through a keyhole with both eyes at once. <laughs> this idea of we're hard. You know, it's maybe cliched, but somebody once said, with the Celt, the truth dawns. With the Ulster prod, the truth hits. Isn't it a bit of a tragedy and a travesty? That the defense of the gospel has now become associated with hardness. A hardness that creeps in without grace. I'm not talking about going down the path of least theological resistance or in any way diluting truth. But wouldn't it be awful if we found ourselves characterized as a people of truth but so hard we were impenetrable, we were impervious to others. Be careful of the hardness and the deceitfulness. We need to be encouraging each other every day. And to remind 
Each one, every head counts. This is not about clergy, it's not about office, it's about every head count in this body. Lift up the head of everyone, because every one of them count in this onward progress. And look at the final encouragement here at verse 14. Hold on to the end. Where you, well, have to persevere right through till you come to the finishing point. Isn't it so easy to think? And how many really associate, they never, their Christianity in Northern Ireland often never gets beyond the starting point. Let me tell you how I was converted 20 20 years ago. And we always associate with what has happened simply in the past. But what's God doing today? What am I anticipating God to do tomorrow? Because the real test, you see, of the authenticity, the veracity of our faith, will be the faith that stands right through until the very end. And then we'll see the foundation of it. It's no good having just a sprint start if we start to flag. The idea is going through to the finish. There's a journey. And one of the lessons in the book of Hebrews is, you see, they never finished that journey. Oh, oh, I know. I I can hear Calvinist minds ticking over and say, but if, if Jesus says you're in my hand, nobody will ever take you out of my hand. If God begins a good work in me, he will finish it in the day of Jesus. Those whom God called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Yes, I know the verses that tell all that. They're there. They're indubitably there. But so are the verses that says you begin to plow, you've got to finish. So are the verses that says you begin the race, you've got to finish it. We've got to learn to think and have the integrity, the mental and the intellectual honesty to be honest with the Bible. And the Bible is not just taking the theological corner are advocating the theological corner of one camp. There is an honesty there. We talked about that polarity this morning, this book that teaches security, this big book that teaches the certainty of God finishing what he starts. It's the same book that teaches the perseverance, finishing the race. It's not either or. This book teaches both. Because that's the way the Hebrew minds thought. And we've got to persevere to the end. And then comes the crown. Then comes the finish. A whole generation had fallen in that wilderness. A generation that had experienced the exodus. But didn't make it to cross the Jordan. They'd crossed the Red Sea. But they didn't reach the Jordan. Because of, well, their infidelity, their stubbornness. Against that background, the writer in Hebrews wants to encourage us. Listen to the lessons from the past. Tune in and listen in stereo. And as we listen in stereo, we'll discover God saying, look, I want you to continue on the way. Focus on Jesus. Be open to the reality and hear the Spirit at work. Encourage one another. And hold on until the very end. Let's pray together. Lord, there's not one of us know what tomorrow morning will bring. But as we face it, 
May we have the certainty that we can focus on the Lord who for the greater joy that lay beyond endured hardship and even endured the cross. And whatever tomorrow brings and we'll hear the voices of many others, may we open the day, maybe even before we get out of bed, simply opening our ears and opening our hearts to your spirit and asking him to be our teacher and our guide, the one who will make us sensitive to him throughout the day. And as we journey through that day, may we know that there are brothers and sisters around us in such solidarity, they're only a phone call, They're only a short walk away where a cup of coffee can be so much more than a cup. It can be a veritable encouragement to us. And may those things come together so that we'll have the courage and the tenacity and the faith to journey and keep going until the end. In Jesus we pray. Amen.